John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 094.PR2017, certificate number 28002, The Ballads of Ossian. John, you're uh, your show people. Yep. You're forever pulling your kid out of school unexcused to traipse around the world with her. That's right. We have to. We have. We have green rooms to haunt. We have. Uh, we have, <laughs> we have uh, makeup to put on. We're in show business. You are often hitchhiking across wastelands, mm-hmm. uh, covered in grease paint. Have you ever uh, experienced Scotland? I have. I have been hither and and fro in Scotland. Not yon. You went hither and you were like, I could go yawn, mm, but, but then I, you were like, threw away the guidebook and you're like, I'm going fro. I turned and went fro instead. Yeah. Sometimes when I'm in someplace with really moist air, I kind of, I go fro as well <laughs> if I, I don't, don't have conditioner with me. I don't have that. My hair is straight as a board no matter what uh, environmental conditions. But yeah, you do have kind of like, you have that blonde hair that... It has a kind of an anchorman's wave mm-hmm. where if I go to the beach, it kind of turns into a... 80s yearbook prom queen wave. It has your hair has a kind of coarseness. It seems like it could almost be, um, I don't know, not Brillo Patty, but oh, no, it's quite soft. Oh, it is, but but it is Celtic peasant hair. Yeah, Celtic peasant hair. That's what I was looking for. Your uh, how, what was your experience in the in the Highlands as you were going, um, thither and uh, yon? Well, you know, um, my people, my grandfather was a uh, Liar, and uh, his. I thought you were going to say Welshman, <laughs> but instead used a synonym for Welshman. <laughs> liar. He was. Uh, his father was from Wales. My grandfather's father was from Wales, and his mother too. Uh, but he went to a, a college in Ohio. They moved to Central Ohio, where the coal mining was still rocking, uh, because that's what they knew how to do. And they sent their boy, my grandfather, to the College of Worcester there in central Ohio, which was a Scottish, a Scottish Presbyterian college. And all of the high achievers there were Scots. So he lied on his essay. It's one of these, tell us about your multicultural heritage essays. And he was like, my tartan is in my blood. It wasn't that he went, I think he went just as a, a wet behind the ears, local boy. 
and then realized that the he he fell in love with the football prowess. I mean, this is 1900, right? He fell in love with the Scots. And so subsequent to that, Scots were the athletic people. Yeah, they were the, the 1900s. They were the, you know, the, at least at his college, the uh, aristocracy. And so then he went to World War I and somewhere in France and Belgium during World War I, he changed his backstory so that subsequent to that, he was a Scotsman and we were descended from the great, you know, people. The, the, the Bruces. Yeah, the Bruces of Scotland. And so he told that story to my dad and his siblings, and they believed it their whole lives. And when I was born, I was told that story that we were Scots from a, you know, descended from a long line of English defeating, caber tossing, uh, right, kilt wearing Highlanders. You're a spurious Scotsman. It was not until the 80s when my father and his brother and sister went back to England, to England, and went up to Scotland. And said, we are here. We've arrived. Where are, you know, what's our, <laughs> where are our family lands? Uh, and they did a lot of research there. You know, this is at a time when, I mean, how do you do that kind of genealogical research outside of the libraries in the region? And they learned that Roderick was a, was a first name in Scotland. I like how it immediately falls apart. <laughs> really did, because they talk. John to Roderick, <laughs> laddie. You, ca you cannot be Scots. You could be Roderick John, but not the other way. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're Scott, your Scott is from Liverpool, apparently. He's, <laughs> he's a Beatles fan. Yeah, I, would, I was going to pay a compliment, a reverse compliment to your Scottish accent, too. My Scottish <laughs> accent is entirely based on my favorite Scotsman, Scrooge McDuck. Oh, I was going to say it was, it was Star, Star Trek. Trek straight derived. up Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> I can't get enough power. <laughs> She's going to blow. <laughs> but uh, but they quickly sort of returned to London with some clues and did some with research their kills there. between their legs. Yeah, did some. And prior to that, every time my dad would go to Europe, he would come back. I had all these tin figurines of great Scottish war, you know, like. Uh, Collect had, them all. I had these little Ronin of all the sort of like Scotsmen going into battle. It's like Pokemon, but with like Scottish. With like hand-painted lead figures. Pipeymon. I'm, I'm just old enough that that was still a gift that people thought you could buy a child. Like, oh, this is a nice thing that 70-year-old men enjoy. People Maybe. do have to remember your D&D playing childhood. You know, you were, you were surrounded by lead figurines <laughs> was, at all times. That was even before D&D. Uh, but then in London, doing their research, they were then directed the other direction out to Wales and none of us had even, we'd never even considered Wales. You'd never or, heard of Wales. Yeah, we really hadn't. Uh, and I'm saying the Royal we, cause I was 15 and following all this via postcard as my dad would write me and say, turns out. <laughs> and so I'm like, wait a minute, we're not from Scotland. And then they went to Wales and found our entire family that we have, we have an extant clan there. Well, I mean, Scottish culture is a good one to borrow because it seems so rich to us oh, now, right? So rich. The pipes and the drum and the tartan and the... Undefeated, uh, like stoic, stalwart. Sure, Highland chieftains and they're tossing 20-foot poles around. Like that's their really their only sport. Mm -hmm. It's kind of lumberjack derived, like a guy with a telephone pole just throwing it across a field. I think they chase rabbits too, don't they? I mean, the Scots have more than just that sport. I think they have rock throwing contests also. They'll chase a rabbit. They watch the clouds go across the sky. Is that competitive when they watch the clouds? I don't think there's anything that a Scotsman can't make competitive. They have tug of war, but they can't afford rope. 
So they just... It's hard to imagine. How grab that, a how, rabbit. How they grab a rabbit on either right. side and pull. It's a very brief, inhumane sport. <laughs> the winner is the one with the largest portion of rabbit. But it's kind of funny that, uh, you know, today we think of Scotland as having this, um, you know, rich, vibrant culture. That's That's a revisionist thing that no Englishman for centuries would have recognized. Right. Um, for centuries, the English hated the Scots and not just hated them, but really thought they were subhuman. And vice versa. <laughs> right. <laughs> to the English, the Scots were just a wild, lawless, unchristian people. Um, and th this goes back to early visitors, you know, St. Jerome writing down that the Scots were all cannibals, you know, like St. Jerome said that he had seen, and this was not true, he had translated, mistranslated someone else saying that he had seen Scottish tribes just ripping the buttocks off a shepherd and the breasts off the shepherd's wife and just chowing down oh. on, on butts and, oh, and breasts. shepherd buttocks. It is kind of funny that St. Jerome is kind of titillating his that, audience with these. I mean, what's a shepherd's pie? Do you think? It, it might just be made of shepherd. It never occurred to me. It's a, it's from a single buttock? It's not. It's you can not get a, two pies off of one <laughs> shepherd. It's not a pie made by a shepherd or for a shepherd. <laughs> it's made of a shepherd. It's full of delicious shepherd. Oh, gods. If you look at the ingredients, it's like number one ingredient. We Sh are guaranteed to you. Shepherd buttocks. Shepherd. Number two ingredient, shepherd's wife's breasts. <laughs> oh. It's like, are you a, are you a white, are you do, do you feel like a breast or a thigh today? <laughs> <laughs> and there were whole spurious histories written about these colorful, savage people with the result that as late as the 17th or 18th centuries, when the English wrote about the Scots, they would very seriously compare them to the savages of Madagascar. You know, the only people we can think of to, you know, as, as, uh, barbarian as the Scots would be the the South Sea Islanders with all their fiendish pagan rituals. That's even though they lived a hundred miles away. Well, I, it, it's I, like it's the way we think of Canada, basically. Yeah, right. <laughs> effectively, effectively, the Canadians are the Sentinelese of the United States. <laughs> um, for sure, the Scots remained largely unconquered, even when they were conquered. Uh, like in their, is, like in their heart, their, in their, heart, their heart was still to coin a phrase in the highlands. Yeah, that's right. And even when they emigrated to the United States, the Scots Irish came to America and retained a very separatist culture, even here. Apparently setting up their own colleges in, in central Ohio. That's right. Well, and I mean, when we think of the people of Appalachia and all of the, in, in our American terms, when we think of Appalachia and describe it as backward and you know, the hillbilly, the, the Hatfields and McCoys, those are all Scots-Irish. Yeah, they're, it's Mac-Coy, yeah. right? Yeah. And of course, this got even worse in the 16th and 17th centuries when there actually was a Scottish boogeyman, you know, Jacobite uprisings and rebellions when the, the Scots really did want to put their own Catholic king back on the throne, which again, true of Canada, also pl right. plotting our overthrow. Always trying to put their... Quebecois president on our American <laughs> throne. They've got Pierre Trudeau frozen in a lab and one day they are going to find out how to revive him and he's just going to come out like Frankenstein and wreak havoc on the border states. He keeps winning over the affections of all the 30-year-old liberal girls in America. If he, if there was an election today. Oh, you're talking about Justin? Yeah. I'm imagining that his, his dad. Oh, you're talking a, about the like reanimated corpse of Pierre? Yeah, he's actually got bolts on his neck now. <laughs> <laughs> if he brings his wife, I'd vote for him. Oh yeah, I forgot you have a thing for Mrs. Trudeau. I do. I do. You, you I could do. 
you can see where Justin gets those, you know, clear blue eyes. Oh and God, that, you really can. Those. He's, he's the spitting image of his mother. And they're to the North of us, you know, just like the Scots, you get the sense that they're kind of looming over us in a dangerous way. Well, and that Northern half of both Canada and Scotland feels not just impenetrable from the South. Like how would you, it's like invading Russia in the winter. It's not a question of like getting to the cities. They can always run. The Canadians can just run North and seemingly forever. They, they can all go to the cottage. That's right. Canadians all have a cottage that they can get away to. Yeah. They get up there into New Brunswick or whatever. They go up to Hudson Bay and we'll never catch If we them. tried to invade Vancouver, we would get there and it would just be deserted. It would deserted. be a walking dead city because everyone would be at the cottage. Everybody and, would be we in would the have Yukon been outsmarted. Yeah. Uh, and Scotland the same. I mean, it's not just that they can head north, but also that they go they up can, into the hills. They can disappear into the glen. Into the hills. Well, right. there were t effectively two Scotlands in the, as late as the 18th century. You know, if you were in the Scottish lowlands and you were just an Englishman on a walking tour, maybe you've brought Dr. Bo you've brought Boswell with you to write mm -hmm. about your adventures. Mm -hmm. Just for instance. Just for instance. <laughs> well, everybody, every rich Englishman had a Boswell back then. Right? Uh, Riding behind I... them with a pen scratching. I know you think that you're my Boswell. I wish that you were. Well, that would be so, my life would be so much better if you actually were interested enough in me to be writing about me instead of just coming v over and visited Jay Roderick again <laughs> of an evening, found him in his cups, I, drinking I a kale smoothie. I don't know. I, I don't know what's in your diaries. I'd be really curious. I hope I make regular appearances. One thing you told me this morning is that you kind of feel like you're my Boswell as well, hmm. which would be. I'm your podcasting Boswell. That's right. You wouldn't have had a podcast unless, uh, well. I hammered you about it for f several years and you were like, nah, what do I have to say? What is this podcast anyway? What, what is this media? I don't think this medium actually exists. No. Podcasting is the kind of thing you have to hear about a lot before you believe that it's real. Yeah. Yeah. You resisted it for a long time. So in that sense, I am your Boswell. And I've still resisted it. I don't want to talk to pe people today. I believe in leaving this legacy for the future. Right. But the idea that um, people would put on their earbuds or, you know, at the gym and hear me talking about um, my cats or whatever. I know, you find it anathema. It's, it makes me furious. What was I even saying? Oh, right, you're wandering in the Scottish lowlands, you're an Englishman. You would find it not too different from just uh, the, the, the cottages and fields of home. You might as well be in Surrey. You would find a, an educated Protestant people with a thrifty merchant class. Um, it's socio and economically much the same as England. You could spend your, your script or your coin there. Mm. Um, although you know that Scotland actually has its own, they mint their own coin. There are pound notes that are Scottish pound notes, although they're directly tied to the does English it say pound. Bank of Scotland it does. And they're beautiful. The Scottish pound is a beautiful note. Do you remember what a big deal it was a, a couple of years ago when uh, the UK announced that they would be putting Adam Smith on, mm. on an English, <laughs> on, a, on a 20 pound note or something. And people were like, but he's a Scot. <laughs> How can he be on our money? I do. I mean, it's not as bad as the controversy you'd get if Scotland tried to put an Englishman on their money, probably. No. Can you imagine the riots? Wait, the do they? The riots in Edinburgh. But they must have the queen. Uh, she's practically an honorary Scot at this point. Well, she is. Because Seven of, months a year, she's driving around Balmoral in a Hummer. Her, her right, Balmoral Castle, which I incidentally have stood at the gates of Balmoral Castle. Were you trick-or-treating? I was. <laughs> uh, effectively. <laughs> I, I drove up and it was not clear how far up the driveway you could go. Like there wasn't just a, there wasn't a. There weren't guys with tall furry hats? No, it, and it didn't have the whole thing about, um, 
it didn't feel like Belfast in 1979 either. There weren't like machine guns out there. You just looked up the driveway and I'm sure if you went through the gate and up the driveway, there'd be somebody that would step out of the bushes and say, halt. But I looked up the driveway and, you know, I'm bold, sure, but I wasn't quite bold enough to like take a left and head up Balmoral Drive and see how many corgis I could get before, <laughs> before, before you get grabbed. Before I got tackled. That's another Scottish sport. I got seven corgis. Corgi grabbing. <laughs> I've been corgi grabbing with the Queen's corgis. Um, oh my God. You, I'm, I'm so glad this won't be listened to until many thousands of years hence. When the Scottish accent does sound like a Star Trek you, you voice. Would, you would really get letters. You would get letters. <laughs> I want to be kind of the Dick Van Dyke of um, Scottish minstrelsy, like the like <laughs> the bad accent that, that allows them to turn up their nose at Americans. Chim chimity, chim chimity, <laughs> chim chim chitty. Oi, what's this? What do we have here? Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins. But what I was going to say is that the Highlands were, and to some degree still are, a different story. Um, mm-hmm. In the as late as the 17th and 18th century, they would still have been ruled not by any elected official, but by actual clans. Mm-hmm. What some chieftain said would go. Uh, most people would not have spoken English. You could have gone all day if you didn't speak Gaelic um, without finding anyone to talk to. Uh, you probably would have had to watch your back because robbery was a typical and even honorable profession. Mm. So the Scottish Highlands were... These are my people, although apparently not my people. You seem very... You're right. You feel a (laughs) spiritual bond that was ripped from you at the age of 17 in a postcard. Dear John, hope you are enjoying school. Uh, The weather here is fine. You are Welsh. (laughs) Turns out... Love. Turns out your your bandit history that you thought uh, was so great. No. Uh, And so from this milieu of... uh, Scottish hating bigotry. And as a result, you know, this, this idea that we have of Scotland as an ancient and vibrant Gaelic culture is lost on England, not even in any kind of kind of minstrel form. There's not even a, a caricatured form of it, really. Walter Scott is just a, a, a twinkle in, in Mr. and Mrs. Scott's eyes at this point. Robert Burns has not yet been born. No Scottish art, hardly any Scottish legends and lore. Ireland, maybe. Scotland, nothing. And into this world, a young man named James McPherson is born. He's a poor farmer's son from a poor part of Scotland. But he well, shows that seems redundant. <laughs> from an even poorer <laughs> part of Scotland. Are you saying, which part is redundant? Saying a poor farmer, poor Scotland, or just poor and Scotland? Yeah, both. A poor farmer in a, uh, from a poor part of Scotland. It's like, well, you're... <laughs> You've just eliminated like one square mile of Scotland. <laughs> We've eliminated it one laird. <laughs> one he, laird. He lives in some kind of house made of dirt and sod and mm-hmm. possibly jute. Mm-hmm. Jute became our go-to uh, idea of, of a coarse medieval fabric. But of course, jute is like from India, I think. Uh, but anytime you take reeds and weave them together into a bastic where you put your... A bastic. Uh, you put your child and, and put it in the Nile and float it away in so order to keep it from being murdered. Any kind of thatch or hemp to you is, mm. is jute. I'm going to call it jute from here on out. Although, no, you have to be able to make a rope out of jute. That's, I that, don't think you can make a rope out of thatch. If you could make a rope out of jute, they could have had the tug of war back. Hmm. But McPherson is a bright child, enough that it seems he might have a future in some kind of actual profession. He gets sent off to the University of Edinburgh, but drops out quickly. Hmm, I like him already. Yeah, he's, he's not really fulfilling his early promise. 
But he does get, uh, it, it, it's the kind of thing where he talks a lot about becoming a clergyman. I think this is the kind of thing a bright lad could do back then. Oh, I'll just be a clergyman. It's not even a matter of calling or religious devotion. It's just, it's like a safe middle-class career. Yeah, it's the thing that the second son who doesn't inherit uh, decides to do. What would that even be today? Like, because today that's not an option. You know, if oh, I got my English degree, but I don't really know what I'm going to do. I know. I'll become a vicar. Yeah, right. Well, <clears throat> part of it is that we don't have, typically families don't have three sons. So you can't be the, you know, your older brother doesn't go into the family business and leave you with... Well, there's so much that doesn't exist there. Right. There's no family <laughs> business. There's no older brother. I guess it was the oldest brother in, inherits the family money. The second brother goes into the army and the third brother becomes a minister. That was the way the aristocratic families did it. Army's better than clergy? I guess you could flip it around. I guess it depended on whether the second brother was homosexual or not. Right. That they would they would have some caber tossing and find out who was more apt for the clergy and who was more apt for the, the army. Right. But yeah, there isn't a like a respectable middle class place that you can go have a lifetime calling or a lifetime of work that is just somewhat automatic. They're, they're, they'll always, they'll always take another. You get a little house. Yeah. You know, a, a parish somewhere. People probably bring you ginger snaps. Absolutely. On Christmas, you go around to every house in the village and I don't know, bless the babies. I'm not exactly sure what they do. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what they do. <laughs> they bless the babies, right? Every Christmas. You know, you know that, that famous Christmas tradition we all know and love and, and sing carols about. Yeah. Blessing all the babies. Oh, bless the babies. And, uh, and what about the babies that were blessed last Christmas? Does he bless them again? Mm, they're not babies anymore. You don't bless toddlers, of course. Oh, that, do you ever hear the song, Bless the Toddlers? It's, that's more of a, like, a, a jig. But he's got, but he's <laughs> bless got, the toddlers, bless the toddlers. But he's got 365 days worth of, of babies since last Christmas to bless. I have a friend whose younger brother was sort of uh, shiftless, wandering the earth, listening to the Grateful Dead, smoking pot, didn't know what to do with himself. And he went to Israel, they're Jewish, and became radical, not radicalized, became religiousified uh, on his trip back to Israel. That's, that's what they do there. That's, that's how they get you. That's how they get you. It's just like the Mormons that stand out in front of the tabernacle and say, are you Mormon? Would you like to? If, yeah. if it was like the Mormons, we would be offering everybody a free trip to Utah. And then once, <laughs> once you get there, you're like, do you know you could be a pioneer too that's now? Right. I, have a, I have just enough, you know, with my beard and my kind of underbite I'm often mistaken for uh, for a Jewish boy when I go to New York. I didn't know that it's, was the thing. It happens. It happens. I have quite a, a whole lot. new anti-Semitic view on life now. A beard and an underbite. Yeah. Huh? So when I walk through Williamsburg, especially ten years ago when there was when it was really popular for the Orthodox men there to stand on street corners and grab every guy that they thought was Jewish and say, "Are you Jewish? What are you doing with your life?" Uh, I would get grabbed all the time. Grabbed by the lapels and, you know, like, come to temple. You don't look Jewish enough for me to grab by the lapels. Well, not to you. You look pretty goyish, John. Well, I do when you look at me through your goy goggles. <laughs> I got my goggles on. <laughs> like, you look like Robert Redford in the way we were compared to most Jewish people. <laughs> but, if you, but the thing is, there are a lot of uh, blonde Jews from Poland and Russia and so forth. Sure. Anyway, my friend's brother came back and decided to become a rabbi. And, you know, this was his calling. Now, he was not 
what you would, he, he had not excelled in school, let's say. He had not, he did not feel the calling to become a rabbi from a young age. He but, was not a scholar. And is that a thing? Can you, can you have and be a dumb rabbi? Well, so he became a rabbi, but not a scholarly one. And as you just uh, suggested, right, we have a, an idea that rabbis are all very scholarly and that their culture is very intellectual. Sure. Um, Long but, Talmudic discussions about details of doctrine and fine points of the Torah. But like in all religions, there need to be quite a few rabbis that just administer last rites and just go into the, you know, like all the rabbis in the army who are just there <laughs> to like do the job, right? And so my friend's brother became a rabbi and now is like the in-house rabbi at a Jewish retirement community. And uh -huh. he just, uh, he has a job, right? It's like a, a nine to five, uh, but as a, as a man of the cloth. And is that the bottom of the pecking order, like retirement center rabbi? No, I think he, you know, I, I think it's one of those things when a good job comes up, like he'll, he could, he could tell he'll make his way there. In-house um, rabbi at Dollywood. <laughs> on, on call, on call rabbi. He's got a little hut kind of that he sits in and is like, anytime somebody walks by like me, he's like, Hey. You don't need last rights by any chance. I mean, today it would probably just be something like middle management, right? But even that doesn't exist in the same way. I mean, middle management jobs are, people are, are fighting each other for them. You don't get anywhere. I'm not saying it's going to get handed to you on a silver platter, John. Well, but that's what joining the Scottish clergy probably was. I mean, you had to know, you had to know the Bible, but it was the only book they had. From Jane Austen, I just get the impression you just had to be kind of prissy. Yeah, right. And maybe annoy local women if you were single. That's like the only requirement. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get Get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. When, when I, when I uh, went to Jesuit school, the accepted convention there was that there were three kinds of Jesuits. Because they're the intellectual Catholics. They're the rabbis right? of the Catholic world. Right. And so. That's what their little seal says. They were all, you know, you had to be smart and curious to be a Jesuit for 80% of them. 80% of them had to be smart and curious. Of the 80%, 60% of the Jesuits were also gay. This was just accepted within the school. Like you just understood that this was where the gay intellectual Catholics found a home. A majority of the 80% you're saying. Yeah. And then there were 20 to 25% of the Jesuits. They were just on basketball scholarship. That's exactly right. They were Wait, not, really? they, they were not smart. This was also where the failed jocks went. 
if you were like a, if you had been a Catholic jock at some school and decided that you wanted to have a lifetime appointment, you would go into the Jesuits and then you could just sit and, you know, polish your football trophies and is that what they call it? And and then and they were the hale and hearty ones, right? They beca- they they sure took they're on the- they're like the ones that are like boys gather around, yeah, you right. know, like Father Flanagan. Stuff. So they ended up getting the leadership positions in the you know the, if you were going to be in administration a, as a Jesuit, you were like, so, let me tell you about my field hockey. So all these smart repressed gay kids are just being um, bullied and and told what to do by a bunch of lacrosse kids. No, they're in the they're in the majority. It's the you right, know, but, it's, but it's being run by the it's, yeah, but it's it, being run by the dummies. They did the brilliant thing. They put the figurehead out there, you know, to take all the flack, and then they get to sit in their enclave, in their in their cashmere sweaters, and think about Augustine. I had I had a priest at Gonzaga who was the best dressed person I had ever seen, and he obviously came from a rich, rich, rich family because his clothes were all perfectly tailored. Everything was made of cashmere. And uh, I remember, you know, asking the other students, like, what is the deal with this? Like, he's so... There's preppy Jesuits? He's so GQ. And they were like, oh, you should, you know, you need another glimpse under the skirts of the Catholic Church. I'm going to leave that alone. Uh, McPherson never actually got as far as the people in your stories. He he was always kind of an aspiring clergyman. It was just what the the family said to neighbors. Um, Apparently, he never took orders or anything. His... uh, his job was mostly village school teacher. By take orders, you mean become ordained. Right. Yeah. Did I say that right? He never took something, holy orders? What do you call it when you become a priest? Do you, is it take? You accept know. the orders? You Basically, whether you're army or clergy, assume. you're you going to the you're take orders. Uh, and at some point after he le- he leaves that village school, he he becomes mo- mostly a tutor to, you know, rich aristocratic guys, awful sons. You say that with such palpable disdain. You said tutor. You spit it out. Tutor. Well, think about your life. Think how awful these children of the, of the landowner of the nobility must've been, you know, so it's the village squire and he has to live in this awful kid's house and try to teach him Latin (laughs) and sums. Mm -hmm. And that's where he was working when, uh, he, he showed a writer friend. He'd always loved Celtic lore and Scottish legends uh, you know, the stories of his people. And he, he showed a fellow writer um, some fragments that he said he had translated from traditional Scottish stories. And the writer said, you know, these are very good. You you should take these to, to Edinburgh and show scholars. Like, I've never seen anything like this. And he goes to Edinburgh and London with these poetic fragments that he's translated. Where did he find these things to translate? He translated them from Gaelic? Yeah, he, he said he had translated them from Gaelic and they were they were either oral histories, you know, stories he'd heard the old people talking in villages. Ah, the old people. Or, you know, just fragments of, of parchment that, that collectors or monasteries had. And after his, these poetic fragments become a success, he decides, well, this is very promising. And he goes back to that. He trudges back into the highlands and spends years wandering around that, you know, the Hebrides, the islands, the northwest part of Scotland, um, going into remote parts. And he comes back from his journeys into Northwest Scotland with an amazing find. He has translated a series of uh, something Scotland's never really had written down, an epic poem by a bl- an ancient blind bard named Ossian. Uh, Ossian is the son of a Scottish warrior king called Fingal. And his writings, you know, these, these songs, ballads, whatever you want to call them, are sagas of, of Fingal's time and his people, you know, uh, an epic of 
Fingal's heroic battles and his conquering and, and you know, romances with swooning maidens. And it's a, it's a big, big deal at the time because there really is no record of written Gaelic poetry from the Dark Ages. You know, it was assumed that it was all an oral tradition. So he's like the Alan Lomax of Scotland. Exactly. T tell us about Alan Lomax and his love of folk songs and whatnot. Yeah, Alan Lomax actually had uh, tape recording equipment and um, in the early middle 20th century would drive around all of, of Appalachia and throughout the South and make recordings of these, uh, of people playing their songs on their front porches uh, and compiled like a tremendous repository of all the great folk music of the United States. His son carried on his work. It's how we, I mean, it's how we know what, um, we would not have lead belly. We would, we would not have muddy waters or Woody Guthrie. And without Woody Guthrie, you don't get Bob Dylan, Dylan and 20th right. century folk, you know, late 20th century folk music. A lot of the rock and roll, a lot of what we call rock and roll is a product of people have, being exposed to that music by, by the recordings of Alan Lomax. So it's all kinds of blues and roots music. And yeah, he, and he just wandered around and this is exactly what McPherson was doing. He was wandering around and, and getting these oral traditions and translating them for English into, for the first time. And if you look at it today, it, it, you know, it, it's not, it's not rhyming verses. It, it looks like prose if you read it today and it's very florid and melodramatic by our standards. You know, it all reads, here's a, here's an excerpt, a typical excerpt. It all reads something like this. Connell lay by the sound of the mountain stream beneath the aged tree. A stone with its moss supported his head. Shrill through the heath of Lena, he heard the voice of night. At distance from the heroes he lay, the son of the sword feared no foe. The hero beheld in his rest a dark red stream of fire rushing down from the hill. Krugel sat upon the beam, a chief who fell in fight. He fell by the hand of Swaran, striving in the battle of heroes. His face is like the beam of the setting moon. His robes are of the clouds of the hill. His eyes are two decaying flames. Dark is the wound of his breast. And not for the first time, Bilbo thought back <laughs> to his kitchen and wondered how long it would be before he returned to Underhill. You cannot read it without <laughs> thinking about Tolkien doing this kind of pastiche of uh, ancient sagas and, and Norse and Celtic epics. Um, that's exactly what it reads like today because we have nothing else like this, right? Right. Tolkien's the only person in the 20th century to even try something like this. And then, of course, all of his, all of his descendants. That whole aisle of the bookstore where you don't really go. <laughs> right. Did, did you ever go to the, the end of it where they have the D&D &D books? Is that, that's as far as you went? Well, you know, there were always kids in my school who wanted me to read ElfQuest. Uh, <laughs> and they tended to be a certain kind of girl in a sweater who had migrated over to ElfQuest. But I always thought that they were a little porny. They were kind of close to Dakota, the the sex cat or whatever. Omaha, the cat. Omaha, answer. that's right. Thank you. <laughs> Omaha, the cat. Dakota, answer. the sex cat. <laughs> Dakota is the name of my puppy. Yeah, Dakota, the sex cat slash Omaha, the, the cat dancer. That's what I meant. Bill the cat. No, not Bill the cat. Bob the cat. Bob's your uncle. <laughs> Fritz the cat. Bill is the uh, <laughs> is the Billy and the Boingers cat. If no. we're if we're getting into eighties cats, no. Bill the cat is yeah right yeah, from from, from Bloom County. County. Yeah, Billy and the Boingers. Act. Bloom County, a reference that no one in twenty eighteen will get, much less twenty six eighteen. <laughs> we don't know whether or not Bloom County and its uh, trenchant commentary on the Reagan administration won't be extremely popular in two thousand nine hundred. Um, well, so this sounds very exciting. He has translated all the. Because as modernity creeps in, right, all those wonderful oral traditions 
get encroached upon and lost. Like as Gaelic became less and less of a, of a common language, I'm sure those songs and stories would have been lost to the ages. I don't know if there's a sense yet that that is dying, but yeah, maybe just that it, you know, it doesn't exist and, and surprise from an English audience that, uh, what they thought of as a savage culture actually had this poet's soul. But this becomes, you know, because we know the Irish have it, right? That's because the Irish never stop talking stop about talking it. about it, right? It's like, <laughs> how do you know there's a fireman at your party? Oh, he'll tell you. Uh, how do you, how do you know the Irish are great poets? You'll hear about it eventually. The joke works for vegans, <laughs> works for uh, dog rescue own, rescue dog owners, uh, marathoners. Uh-huh. But this, uh, McPherson's work, which he publishes, uh, I think under the name, some of the poems under the name of Fingal and then a l- later poems he's found under the name of Tamora. Um, you know, he just keeps digging up this great material and London goes nuts for it and the world goes nuts for it. This becomes an international sensation and it, it's kind of the birth of romanticism, mm, right? Like reading right. those lines, you can see the, the heroic individual he prizes, you know, his own bravery and emotion and intuition over, because the Industrial Revolution was a hard pill to swallow, you yes. know? People were being turned into a series of cogs by rational efficiency, and they didn't like it. They wanted poems about fire and flame and sturm und drang. Sure, and laying down on a rock covered with moss as your pillow. I mean, it's also, it's dramatic and emotional and also has a... Um there's a broody melancholy about it too that allows you to be sensitive. I mean, broody melancholy is exactly what the core of romanticism is. And, Mm. and I guess, you know, you're a, an indie rock musician. You're, you're the last dying gasp of romanticism, right? Like, I I agree. Like what do you, I don't know if you in particular. No, it's me. (laughs) You're, you're it. I'm the last. What do you think of, uh, what do you think of Ossian's prose there? Like, well, I mean, it's turgid. Um, but that was the style of the time. Which, could you think Colin Malloy could write a... Uh... Oh, for shizzle. I mean, it's <laughs> like, it's emo AF. Yeah, it's super emo. And and also it plays really into that romantic idea. And, and I don't mean just romantic, but like romantic capital R. Capital R, right. Idea of, um, of the natural man. The natural man un tarnished by modernity and machines. If and I didn't have this city and this factory job, yeah. moss would be my pillow. And, That's right. And I could have all the swooning maidens I wanted. Probably. Life would be real for me. Like the weather would mean things to me. And, and you know, the worst side of romanticism imparts a kind of like nobility to the savage, right? That was uh, not the worst part, but I mean, that was. Because their clothing is also pretty awful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're ruffles. Yeah, right. They want, you know, they like having a buckskin loincloth seems. Uh, then why are they always lot- wearing like velvet jackets at parties? Well, that's the thing. Then maybe, maybe they have the buckskin loincloth underneath their garments. It might be like those people that go to parties with diapers on. <laughs> <laughs> have a secret at a party. Wear jute underwear. It'll chafe in all the wrong places or the right places. Dear Dan Savage, I wear my girlfriend's underwear to work. <laughs> Um, so all this, you know, the whole romantic movement, all this, you know, Byronic stuff, literally Byron and Wordsworth are, you can see Ossian in their works. Wordsworth wrote kind of faux Scottish stuff, clearly derived from Ossian, uh, Goethe, uh, the kind of the father of, sure, of German drawing romanticism. He translated some Ossian into German and included sections from it in his landmark work, The Sorrows of Young Werther. But re- restaged it in Thuringia? Or how did he... <laughs> well, 
<laughs> How did he make it distinctively German? Because you know that's important to them. Well, the, that's the funny thing. You know, this becomes a voice of nationalism throughout Europe. Mm. You know, the, the mm. French, the Hungarians are inspired by it and are translating Ossian into Hungarian and it becomes the, the poet of their people and their struggle. And the French love it. You know, Napoleon goes into battle with a copy of it. And of Ossian. Of Ossian. And gets um, Angerer and David and all his painters to paint scenes from the Ossianic ballads for his palaces. Thomas, in America, Jefferson loved it. He he wrote a fan letter to, to Ossian, if you can imagine. Does it demean Jefferson to picture him as some kind of fanboy? A little bit, especially since he's writing a letter to someone who's presumably been dead for 700 years. <laughs> Sorry, he wrote, you're right. He wrote a fan letter to McPherson. Oh, I see. Okay. He's okay. not writing to Ossian in his diary. <laughs> Dear Ossian... Uh, you are my poet. No, he compliments McPherson on bringing Ossian to light. He says, I am not ashamed to own that I think this rude bard of the North, the greatest poet that has ever existed. There it is, the rude bard. And it's it's right back to Alan Lomax that we that we feel like these, these country mountain people have access to some kind of truth. It, for one thing, it clears a very low bar. We thought they were morons in their dirt houses, but check out these, this amazing song. Check it out. But also it's got some authenticity, you know, mm -hmm. country life and, uh, you know, the nature and the wild. And but the idea that it connects with people feeling like there's a, there is a heart to their nation in the rough founders, in the people with the spirit of their place. Even if you're Swedish or Hungarian or French or Greek. Yeah, just like, oh, I know these. I mean, I, one time in Hungary, I went to a swap meet. Bear with me. And there at the swap meet, it was also a... Um, a Key party. Uh, no, <laughs> I wish. Uh, but no, it was a... Um, what are the medieval gatherings, the uh, Renaissance fair. Oh. It was a swap meet and Renaissance fair. And as part of the Renaissance fair, they enacted a whole Hungarian foundation myth drama where people on horseback rode through, they fought off the Huns, they pushed back the, the Ottomans, like they did. And it was all acted out while, while a guy like read a kind of Hungarian epic poem into a microphone. It's like Magyar propaganda day. It really was. Or as I say, Magar. You get in trouble for saying Magar. I do because it's Magyar. But, uh, but yeah, right. This, this we're, we're not judgy. The future can put the G and the Y in any order. Everyone is so judgy. There's only two orders for the G and the Y, but you can do what you want. We're not going to judge you. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> so, and it's not just the romantics. You know, he inspires mystics like William Blake um, he gets everybody into like kind of Scotlandia, kind of a, you know, this Celtic idea of, a, uh, you know, again, a, you know, kind of a minstrel culture, um, a caricature right. of, of Scottish life with the kilts and the, the tartans and the chieftains, which gives you Sir Walter Scott and even Robert Burns, you know, Robert Burns, the poet laureate of Ur Scotland. Scottish poet. He did. He wasn't even born yet. He he started writing poetry inspired by what he thought of as the ep ancient epic soul of his people, the ballads of of Ossian. There were paintings, there were operas. It really did turn Scotland into, it was like the Harry Potter of the 18th century. It became a tourist attraction as well, well just like kids going to King's Cross. It's funny because we do not, uh, even in, to this day, we think of the tartan as being something that goes back in Scotland a thousand years to, to denote the different clans. Mm. But in fact, the tartan did not distinguish itself in Scotland until the 17th century. And 
even then it wasn't clearly connect, different tartans weren't clearly connected to clans until the 18th century. So the whole idea of that, that we have of the sort of Highlander culture taking place in 1100 AD is entirely a, a revisionist. It's as revisionist as a Prince Valiant Sunday strip. It is. It's just like, oh, well, Tartans, I mean, all of it, this whole idea of Scotland, all is this agglomeration of it's post-romantic later things. So to this day, you can go to Scotland and go to the island of Staffa and see a sea cave that is called Fingal's Cave. And there's another cave that's called Ossian's Cave. And these were just canny 18th century rebrandings mm-hmm. to get people to, to go to stuff and, <laughs> and to buy their... Uh, they're barley bread or yeah. Or, come on down to Finian's cave. <laughs> it was the sea lion caves of its time. <laughs> uh, Mendelssohn was so inspired. I don't know if you ever went there, but he wrote an, a whole Hebrides overture called Fingal's cave inspired by the works of Ossian. When Napoleon um, installed his own godson, Joseph Bernadotte on the Swedish throne in 1844, he needed to give him a, a new regnal name, something that sounded vaguely northern, I guess. And he chose Oscar because Osgar is a character in the Ossianic Ballads. It's a name meaning uh, spear of God or something. And uh, Oscar was not a name that existed up until that point. But mm. because, because uh, Napoleon just installs this Prince Oscar on the throne of Sweden, it becomes a super popular Scandinavian name to this day. I have a friend who is Scandinavian who named his son Oscar. So it's all made up and borrowed from Scotland. Oscar Wilde's parents borrowed it. Wow. Oscar catches on because of Ossian. And even in America, um, some settlers founding a city in central Alabama in the 19th century name it after King Fingal's court, which was called Selma. Hmm. So Selma, Alabama is named for a fictional Scottish place in McPherson's Ossian ballads. So McPherson... Uh, McPherson is the founder of Scotland in a way, or the, or or should be, should be the bard of Scotland. But why do we, why do we not regard him that way? I mean, I, this is kind of the, I've always been tangentially familiar with the name, but, but he's not, he's not lauded as. Like we, we still remember Jefferson and Napoleon. We don't talk about McPherson or even Ossian much today. No, Ossian is is a is a footnote. And thereby hangs a tale. Mm. So very early in the story of McPherson producing these works of lore and legend, people start to wonder, wait, nobody's ever seen a, a, a written Scottish epic? And this guy suddenly has three of them? Mm-hmm. It starts to seem very unlikely very early. Unlike Alan Lomax, it's not on tape. Yeah. Do you, think, do you think Alan Lomax was just in a Motel 6 somewhere? Like, how, pre- how, how? how <laughs> like pretending to be, like he has a bunch of voices. He does Lead Valley. Right down to the crossroads. And so the skeptics start to take a closer look at the work and they start to notice a few things. The, the chronology seems to be off. Mm-hmm. It all seems to be borrowed from fairly well-known Irish Gaelic oh, legends. Oh, there we go. You know, there's an Irish blind bard called Oisian who seems to be very similar to us. And there's kind of a one-to-one correspondence between Finn McCool, all these Irish characters and people that Ossian is mentioning in his, in his Scots versions of the same legends. Although they do have a similar, or they did back in that time, they would have had the same, like Scots, Irish Gaelic culture was shared. And that's the idea. Like clearly these are authentic Gaelic because they remind us of these Irish uh, uh, songs. I see. But 
there's stuff that's more suspicious than that. There seems to be the influence of modern voices like John Milton mm-hmm. appears, you know, the style of Milton appears to be in the text. And among McPherson's enemies, Dr. Johnson himself, one of the, oh, one of the leading we, men of letters of the here day. Here he comes, Samuel Johnson. Decides who, to line up against him. And he's not just one of the leading men of letters of the day. He's also one of the leading a-holes of his time. Sure, he suffers no fools. And he hates the Scots. He's a huge bigot. He hates all things Scottish. He hates all things. Right. There's the famous, there's a famous quote when he was compiling his dictionary, his, his original, the thing that brought him Samuel Johnson and his original fame. Mm -hmm. Someone said, you know, there are 40 Frenchmen who have been working for 40 years compiling a dictionary uh, of this scope. How do you imagine that you're going to be able to pull this off in eight years with three people. And he said, the proportion of three Englishmen to whatever, 40 Frenchmen Frenchmen times 40 years, uh, like three Englishmen to 1600 Frenchmen is about right. (laughs) (laughs) One of the great disses on the French. The thing about disses back then is they're all very wordy. (laughs) You know, if you look at like, and then he sent him this scathing letter and the letter's like, you know, it's pages and pages. You have to like, wait, wait, what's scathing here? It's not quite like a mean text. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. But Samuel Johnson, he's, he's no fanboy. Not a nice guy. Hates the Scots. If it's Scottish, it's crap. And he specifically decides very early on that McPherson is a fraud. And he publicly says this. He demands, if these are from Gaelic originals, let's see the Gaelic originals. Ooh, Johnson calls him out. Yeah. And McPherson does not produce the work. There are interesting parallels here. Johnson also never finished college. He dropped out of Oxford hmm. and throughout his whole career felt a great, I mean, he was inhibited in, early in his career. No one would give him a job. He wanted to be a headmaster. He wanted to be a professor. No one would give him a job because he didn't have his master's. And in fact, didn't have his degree. And so he had a a real inferiority complex. And that's true of McPherson too. So maybe there was some... So you think Johnson is is more inclined to point out McPherson as a charlatan because he sees something of himself there? Absolutely. Maybe he thinks McPherson's cheating. Like, look how you're roaring to literary fame and success. Absolutely, right? I mean, there's jealousy in here and there's competition, like dropout competition. I feel that (laughs) acutely. You and Bill Gates? Well, I mean, me 
me and all those Harvard dingalings that went on to become billionaires. It's like, hey, I dropped out of college too. I think I'm starting to see the roots of your computer science scorn. <laughs> Uh, so, so, you know, Johnson for years says withering skeptical things about the Ossianic ballads. And, you know, in an age when everyone is a huge fan, it would be like telling people that Harry Potter's not real, I guess. I, I mean, it would, it, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> Harry Potter's not real. Uh, you know, and, and people would say to him, you know, well, Dr. Johnson, could a man of a modern age really have written such poems? Cause that's, that's what the whole argument lies on, right. that these things seem so obviously contrary to anything today we could dream up. Right. Could a modern man really have written this? And Johnson replies, yes, sir. Many men, many women, and many children. Oh, another great diss from Johnson. And uh, Johnson actually, when he's traveling in Scotland, he uh, specifically writes about his doubts about McPherson. And he says, uh, I believe the poems never existed in any other form than that which we have seen. It would be easy to shoe if he had it, but whence could it be had? So the fact that McPherson cannot produce documents is really, to Johnson's mind, proving so he, his case. He cannot. He doesn't. He never comes down from the hills and says. Well, he keeps saying it would be very time intensive and labor intensive because it's been patched together from so many sources. Right. Um, and when Johnson publishes this, McPherson treats it as libelous and actually tries to stop the publication of the book. And when that fails, he tries to have a piece of paper tipped in saying that uh, Dr. Johnson is not uh, telling the truth here and, and apologizes for his libel. And when Johnson, shocker, won't do that, McPherson challenges him to a duel. Oh, no way. And writes, and when Johnson refuses to duel, he writes him to call him an infamous liar and a traducer and says, you know, only the fact, Dr. Johnson, that you are a man of such great age saves you from my Caledonian violence. Oh. And this is when Johnson writes his scathing letter back. Literary duels are my new favorite fanfic. Right? At least yeah. when Hamilton and Burr are getting after it, it's, you know, there's actual politics sure, there's involved. Politics. There's policy. It's going to affect millions of people. These are people who are getting mad about a painting or a song. Right. It feels very much like Twitter. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is my little backyard garden and nobody better disagree with me about Game of Thrones. Yeah. I would like to append to your tweet a disclaimer where you apologize to me. <laughs> Your take about Orange is the New Black was bad. Bad and wrong. So uh, Johnson replies, Mr. James McPherson, I received your foolish and impudent letter. Ouch. Any violence offered me, I shall do my best to repel. He's explaining why he won't duel him. Mm -hmm. And what I cannot do for myself, the law shall do for me. Zing. So it just drips with, uh, I'm English. I'm not going to like fight you with a, a, a quarterstaff. You Scottish weirdo. Sure, sure. Like, we have law and order on this side of the wall. Yeah, it's not a thing where we just throw blankets over <laughs> one another and then hurt each other with potatoes. This is not how we solve problems down here. Uh, I hope I shall never be deterred from detecting what I think a cheat by the menaces of a ruffian. It's very tough to call someone a cheat in this time. I mean, that, that, that is, those are fighting words. And he calls him a cheat and a ruffian a in the ruffian. same sentence. Like, I'm gonna, you're not going to stop me by making fun of a cheat just because you're also a ruffian. What would you have me to retract? I thought your book an imposture. I think it an imposture still. For this opinion, I have given my reasons to the public, public with a K, nice, mm -hmm. which I here dare you to refute. Your rage, I defy. So, <laughs> so I, your arguments I refute <laughs> and your rage I defy. 
How was this received in the public sphere of the day? Well, hold on, hold on. Your abilities, I, I have much oh, more. Oh, there's more there's, more. there's more scathing letter. Do you really think he's just going to write him a tweet? I want more scathing letter. Your abilities, since you're Homer, are not so formidable. And what I hear of your morals inclines me to pay regard not to what you shall say, but to what you shall prove. Also his morals, <laughs> right. he impugns. You may print this if you will. Yours, Samuel Johnson. Um, oh, oh, he's offering... Uh, McPherson the opportunity to print his scathing yeah, letter. Yeah, he 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 says it'll be better for you know it is it is not in your benefit if people know that I'm calling you a cheat. Right. And this is something that McPherson had to deal with for the rest of his life. In 1784, a patriotic, a patriotic. Oh, that's a great word, but I don't think it's a word. I think it's like when when uh, Lord Byron goes to fight for the Greeks, he's going to the Adriatic because <laughs> uh-huh. he's a patriotic. He's a patriotic. But he, then he drowned in the Adriatic. <laughs> So Byron is the only patriotic. But in 1784, a patriotic Highlander living abroad, I don't even know who this is, offers McPherson the sum of a thousand pounds. Because McPherson keeps saying, what a time-consuming task this would be to show you all my sources that I have painstakingly uh, patched together into this beautiful epic. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to do it, but it's the work of a lifetime. So this guy says, Hey, here's a thousand pounds, which was not an inconsiderable sum. That's a ton of money. What he's saying is leave your day job. Show us the, show us the beautiful Gaelic work so that we can stand behind the, the voice of our people here. Oh, so this is an unintentional call out. He believes McPherson, but puts him in a bad corner. So McPherson was never able to produce any kind of documentary evidence that he had not just you know, invented these tales himself by patching together a bunch of Irish Uh-oh. legends. This he, smells like haggis to me. <laughs> he privately wrote a friend um, that he, the reason why he never released the originals, even when the public was clamoring for them, is he said, there is scarce any manuscript to be followed, except indeed a very few mutilated ones in a kind of Saxon character, which is utterly unknown to the Highlanders, as would be either Greek or Hebrew letters. Why could he not just claim that it was majority ballads? It seems like, seems like that's a valid way of describing his research. Well, that's what, what Dr. Johnson said to the theory that, um, you know, what if these are real stories of real provenance. And of course he's had to do something of an editor's work. Johnson compared it, said this would be a situation similar to that of the unhappy gentleman whose wife informed him on her deathbed that one of their reputed children was not his. And when he eagerly begged her to declare which of them it was, she answered that you shall never know and expired, leaving him in irremediable doubt as to them all. So, oh. jo- so Johnson's point of view is that if some of this is stitched together, then none of it has any historical interest. And you know, there's something to that. Like a, the appeal of the works was not just that they were such vigorous poetry, although, you know, v- witness all the people who were saying no modern man could write this. Like apparently the voice of it did speak to people, but it was the idea that there was something ancient and authentic there. Right. Connected to the heart of Scotland and the heart of the Scottish man that resonated with all of the Europeans who also were thinking there was something essential to the Germans or the French or the Hungarians mm-hmm. That was not just cultural, but was also embedded in them. And if it's just some failed tutor and hobbyist making it up in his off hours. Or pulling together a bunch of weird stories and, and turning it into an epic ballad. You know, the, the ASEAN expanded cinematic universe. Um, th- then you lose all of that. You know, you lose much of what gave it its power. And I think that's a fair criticism, you know, because even if McPherson wrote them, we still have the words today but they're not a one of a kind link to the past for sure. Right. Although certainly cribbed by subsequent authors, but maybe 
when fictionalized, more appealing. McPherson's reputation actually never suffered that much, even though even from the widespread skepticism in his lifetime. Um, Did Johnson prevail uh, in the critical sphere? I mean, not now, but in his time. I feel like even in his even in McPherson's own day, the consensus among the quickly became this is not a translation in the way that the first readers assumed it was. Right. Um, But McPherson himself actually uh, stood for Parliament and became a member of Parliament for the rest of his life. Which here, ma- here. Which made him very rich, even though there's no there's no record of him actually doing anything. So maybe he wasn't the least corrupt kind of politician mm-hmm. of his day. You know, the kind of guy making a lot of deals to get a lot of fat pensions without actually accomplishing anything. Mm-hmm. With his with his uh, parliament windfall, he bought an estate in Invernessshire. Yes, and actually became a Scottish man of property. Unfortunately, he did so at the time of the Highland clearances. Uh-huh. which was kind of the famous, uh, you know, that's what broke the back of Scotland, basically right. the enclosure of all the fields um, so that the f- the former farmers could herd sheep for their masters. Right. This was another big uh, founding event in the Scots-Irish emigration Ta- to America. Tale of woe. Yeah, Exactly. Right. And so here is McPherson, the guy who probably created the soul of Scotland out of the whole cloth, kicking all these farmers off their land so he can put up fences for sheep and make a little more money every season. Boy, ironic. Um, ironic and Byronic. <laughs> uh, Thomas Jefferson said later in his life that even if it was not authentic, that Ossian was, quote, equal to the best of antiquity. Wow. So, I mean, this is a little bit of a chink in Jefferson's armor as like a l- literary maven, well, right? Well, at this point, he's kind of... he was so moved... Right. You're invested, right? Yeah. Like if there's a book you loved as a kid and you read it again and you're like, this isn't great. You still love it, right? I'm sure there were people that said that, look, this Millie Vanilli album is still a great record. It doesn't matter that it was recorded by some German studio musicians. It it holds up. When I read Salinger and Vonnegut again, the work that seemed so true to me as a pissed off 15 or 17 year old, today... I see the limitations. You can't get into Vonnegut anymore. Uh, you know, I, I, but I, but it's still so so deep in my DNA. I still just love those books, even if I read them now, and I'm like, yeah, I see what's kind of facile about this. Right. Don't listen. Here's a here's some advice from a friend. Don't read Bukowski now. <laughs> Bukowski's probably the ultimate example of that. Um, when he died, James McPherson was buried in Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey, very close to his arch nemesis, no Samuel Johnson. Kidding! Although Johnson's reputation survives, even though Johnson actually wrote real stuff, and McPherson was possibly the worst kind of forger, fraudster, in Charlotte, <laughs> he's just inches away. I mean, it's pretty good because he because you're saying McPherson never confided in any of his letters to any of his close friends like ah this whole thing was just me writing some poems just just the thing he said before which is you know there really are no manuscripts that anybody would recognize that's as close as he came i mean it's astonishing that the ego desire to be recognized as a great poet didn't propel him to at some point declare, no, I am the author of Ossian. Right. At some point, if Thomas Jefferson is saying, this guy writes as well as Homer, how could you not be like, it's me. It's me. It's, it's me. I'm actually, I'm actually Homer. It's me. I, I actually did it. But I guess he recognized, you know, when the myth becomes fact, you, you print the myth, I guess. Um, well, and Jefferson has a point, which is that the Homeric epics 
we do not actually believe that the gods were actively intervening in the siege of Troy, right? So his stories are also fictionalized. And in our day, and I don't know what, if, what Jefferson would have known about this, but scholarship in our day, we know that maybe there was no Homer. It's uh, no single Homer. Right. It's a bunch of oral traditions in whatever form accidentally survived. And I guess it's that the Scottish epics did not involve the intervention of the gods, but were purporting to be about the about the natural raw Scotsman, the natural rawness of the of the pre-industrial man, with nothing under his kilt, which resonated so strongly, and also then was such a betrayal when it turned out to be just a song. Well, McPherson's reputation may have been scathed a little. Even though he's buried in Poet's Corner, um, people quickly started to say, and it's a rumor that continues to be heard today, that he had to buy his way in, that he paid a large sum of money for the privilege of being buried a few feet away. Oh, I didn't realize that was an option. Samuel Johnson. Is that a thing where Elon Musk is going to get himself buried in Poet's Corner? It seems like... Seems like a hilarious thing to do. I can see Elton John doing it. Oh, come on. Like, I'll put I'll put in 10 bucks to that. Elton John is like, if I give 20 more million for AIDS research, like, can, like, I, can, can I be next to, can I be next to Wordsworth? When was the last person to get buried in Poet's Corner? Mm, I think a lot of the people aren't actually buried there. They're buried elsewhere, but they have monuments. They get a little stone. But Stephen Hawking has a thing there. I mean, not in Poet's Corner, but with the other luminaries. Yeah. Well, let's do that. Let's find out how much it is. I'm sure the queen can give us a quote. Well, look, the for futurelings, they may be laughing right now because you and I are buried in Poet's Corner. Oh, the irony. Ken and John didn't know that they would someday replace McPherson. They could not, that we could not in our moment know that we stand for parliament and that we end up post-Brexit being heroes of the United Kingdom. As long as people never discover that all these entries are, are pure forgeries that we've made up. That's right. I'll, I'll, I'll be content. <laughs> and that concludes the Ballads of Ossian. Entry 094.PR2017. Certificate number 28002 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, although... You may think of us primarily as English parliamentarians. And genius poets. And genius poets lauded and with our names inscribed over the gate of Balmoral. We cannot know that in our time. And we uh, were just we were just Twitter trolls. We're just Twitter trolls. In our time. And in 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 that respect, you need to follow us on social media, uh, which is the gate of Balmoral of our time. Ken is at Ken Jennings. I am at John Roderick in all media. Also at Omnibus Project is owned by us and disseminates our work uh, to the to the mass. To a grateful hypothetical public. To a grateful public who are clamoring for epic ballads where Ken takes on various Twitter people with his scathing humor. With, also, my, with my cudgel and my caber. Right. Also drops some really outrageous puns that I, as the Samuel Johnson of our time, refute and also scorn. <laughs> uh, I am on Instagram where, uh, where even though Instagram is owned by Facebook and is gradually descending into the same mire that, that destroyed all other social media, still seems slightly more fun because there are a lot more pictures 
of doggos. Instagram is kind of your founding myth. Well, no, I was... You're hoping people will will not read your actual history and will just look at... uh, Look at the pictures. The carefully curated lifestyle. Oh photos. yeah, my lifestyle is so curated. <laughs> uh, I was a, I, you know, I was a Twitter OG and loved it there until the most recent election turned everything to sour apples. That poison Twitter. I had to b- take a big step out of Twitter, but you know, if you want to go all the way back to the to the beginnings and uh, read the good times that we used to have on Twitter, by all means, to you in the future, it will all be compressed and seem like just the just indistinguishable work from not the even same know. era. They might not even know there was a version of the of Twitter that was that was like the pre-fire Cuyahoga River. No, know? I think that my my book of the time, Electric Aphorisms, which was a book published of my tweets in uh, the all the tweets that I wrote in the first year I was on Twitter. You are Dr. Johnson. I didn't understand. You published a book of aphorisms in the 21st century. I did. I did not understand that 140 characters was. I mean, I I, I took it as a limitation, but I thought that all tweets had to be exactly 140 characters. Every time you say this, I think, how could that possible? How could you possibly have believed this? Well, after a while, I understood that it wasn't true, but I continued on with the conceit because it was a fun like literary device. It was a, an artificial constraint. Mm. And so for the first year I was on Twitter, every tweet was exactly 140 characters. And then those were collected in a book, Electric Aphorisms, which is now very difficult to find That's and cool. worth thousands. You could publish them in graph paper and put each letter in a box and they would all write justify perfectly. Oh, that's beautiful. I don't know why that wasn't. That would be I, very no satisfying. But it's a book where each page is one tweet. One of those. It Bathroom seemed, book. It seemed a, like a thing. You know, I was actually approached by Sasquatch Books to have that book republished by them and a subsequent vol- volume. And I met with the publisher of Sasquatch Books. We sat down in his office. Is he, in fact, a Sasquatch? He is not. He is not. He's descent. He's half Sasquatch. It's <laughs> a blurry photo of you guys. <laughs> of you guys meeting together. And I, I sat down, and he was like, "Look, I love your book. Where do you come up with these incredible aphorisms? Like, this is so wonderful. Can you just do this all the time?" And I was like, "I have three of these books because they're just my tweets." And he didn't realize that they were tweets. He got a copy of the book, and he thought that. I was just sitting there writing Samuel Johnson style, like. Did that sabotage your book deal when he, he realized they were freely available he, to everyone in the universe? I watched his face fall and he no longer was interested in our conversation. But it's like Ossian, the tweets are the same. The aphorisms are the same. Exactly. And he never, from that point on, he like, after a polite amount of time talking, he stood up and shook my hand and I could tell that the book deal was done and gone. And I was kind of scrambling like, no, no, no. It's like, I can, I mean, sure they're tweets, but they're still really good aphorisms. Am I right? And he, and then from that point on, I never, it's all provenance. I never got another email. They, they wouldn't reply to me. It just, he wandered back into the woods. That's right. It disappeared. They went on to publish other books. Uh, also, you can email us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com, where we are compiling a great collection of emails from fans, which we will publish in a subsequent volume. Sasquatch willing. You can go to Facebook, uh, which is probably in your era, a truly desolate and baked landscape where nothing grows. But in our time... There was a single Eden. There was a little, a little grassy knoll. It's like, the, what's the place they're trying to go to at the end of Waterworld? Oh, I never saw Waterworld. 
What do you take me for? What's the place they're trying to go to at the end of Fury Road? Oh, it's a uh, happy town. Uh, what? No, it's like it's like bad town, but they but it's got grass growing on the top. It's New Eden or whatever. There's always yeah. a place in these post-apocalyptic worlds. There's one a myth of one good place. Oh, sure. She was trying to take them there, and it turned out it was sunbaked in them. Spoilers. A, yeah, sorry. Uh, also, so our group on Facebook is called the Futurelings. Uh, it's a very active community. Of fun-loving, it's an uh, island of smarts. camaraderie and sanity, and in, yep. the, in the mob violence of Facebook. Smart people who like talking about mail trucks, uh, and you can email us directly. Uh, you can send us your portfolio or your collection of prison photos that you've compiled, prison Polaroids that you've compiled over years. Scathing letters, accusing us of charlatanry. Mm-hmm. Uh, to PO Box five five seven four four, Shoreline, Washington nine eight one five five. I think it's charlatanism. I keep saying charlatanry. Send it to P.O. Box 55744, Charlatan, Washington, <laughs> 98155. I think charlatan is in North Carolina. <laughs> Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. John and I will be dead and buried, hopefully in Westminster Abbey, long before the truth is revealed. We hope our civilization survives long enough for us to be recognized in our time as the great poets of the 21st century. Sure. I mean, if we're not buried in Westminster Abbey, what, what did we accomplish? Right. Um, so we hope and pray that catastrophe holds off, perhaps may never come. Uh, so that, yeah, right. If it comes soon, we'll be buried in a potter's field. Literally. Literally. A field where only potters are buried. Right. Because we, we will become uh, craftsmen of clay. Well, wait a minute. You're a rubble. millionaire, so you won't be buried in a potter's field. You probably already have a big monument being carved right this moment by, by craftspeople. If civilization ends, all my, all my game show winnings are, are meaningless. It'll, well, yeah, it'll, it'll, be the, it'll be the parting gifts of rice aroni that will be currency once, once <laughs> our economic systems fail. As we know, uh, deep into the future, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones will survive, but it's anyone's guess whether or not the kinks will make it through the great cheesecloth of history. And so, too, maybe we are kinks or maybe we are stones. Uh, uh, what if we're just like Jerry and the Pacemakers? Yeah, right. That's what I hope we are not. At least we're not one of those prefab monkeys podcasts. <laughs> Last train to Kenville. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, maybe our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.